The way I would describe myself and, and my values politically is um, I believe that I'm a moderate, I believe that I'm a centrist, um, but at the end of the day, I underpin my actions from and, and my, my vision of Calgary or Canada with a human lens and with an empathetic lens towards people. Welcome to the Ballot Box, featuring Sabrina Grover. Welcome back to the Cross Border Interview Podcast, The Ballot Box, a regular segment of the show where we talk about the federal election that is upcoming. We sit down with candidates from across the political spectrum and talk to them about what they're hearing at the door, but also who they are and what they're running on. So today we have Sabrina Grover, the Liberal Party of Canada candidate for Calgary Centre. Sabrina, thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is uh, this is exciting. My first podcast of the election season. I love to hear that. Sabrina, I, I start off all my major interviews with any political candidate with the same question. Where does your sense of duty to serve come from? Great question. Um, I am someone who's been actively involved in advocacy and, uh, you know, activism, I guess, since I was a, a wee youth. And um, a lot of my time spent in that, uh, whether it was through things like Model UN, nerdy, I know, but uh, but <laughs> but it's how we, some of us get bitten by the political bug. Um, or, you know, my time with uh, an organization called the Young Diplomats of Canada. And one of the things I, I've seen through that is that I think sometimes we push a generational divide and say young people are the voice of tomorrow. Um, and I, I don't think that's true. I think all of us are the voice of today, including young people. And um, whether you're 15 or 20 or 30, um, I think you're all always kind of considered young, but my duty to serve comes from being that voice of today and being someone who represents the challenges that those in my generation are facing. Um, you know, I come from, I'm a millennial and uh, people uh, who are like me have faced um, one, two, in some cases, three recessions, depending on where you live. Um, if you live in Calgary, we faced, um, you know, several major disasters uh, that have affected uh, our participation in the economy. Um, we faced generational policy shifts. Um, and those are, those are the kinds of motivating factors that have pushed me into this role. Uh, I, you know, I'm, my duty to serve comes from my commitments to Calgary and my commitments to seeing this city be better and also commitments to uh, making sure that that voice is heard. I want to learn a little bit more about yourself, Sabrina. And the one question that I usually uh, want to know is where does the political bug come from? Did your, was your family political? Did they have the normal around the dinner table political conversation or are you sort of the outlier in your family and decided to jump into politics full force? Um, so a couple of different places, I think for, for me personally, uh, my family's always been involved in politics, um, especially my dad. And, and that's kind of where I, uh, I would say my dad's my mentor in politics and is someone who, who I've always, um, looked up to. And, uh, he, he was an immigrant and he moved here from, from India and, um, you know, India is the biggest democracy in the world. I'm, I'm sure, you know, and, uh, people are highly engaged in politics there. 
And um, he carried that sense with him when he moved to Canada. And I've, I've always um, admired that. And, and I think being involved in politics isn't just, um, I think a lot of people kind of think politics and they think um, boring. And it's really not about that. It's about understanding policy and understanding how things affect your community and um, where different people fit into the, into the um, you know, policy and political spectrum. So definitely I would say like my family has been a big part of that. Um, and then I was uh, a nerd as a young, as a young one. Um, and uh, so a lot of my, you know, political instinct and political um, interest has come from being involved in like debate club um, since I was in grade seven and, um, you know, being able to debate interesting policy at such a young age, all the way through to university. Uh, and has made me interested in debating policy full-time as a, as an adult. And, um, that I think is a really interesting way that a lot of kids uh, get interested in politics and get interested in policy because it makes it interesting. It's not just, um, you know, reading out legislation to you. It's actually having a conversation and, um, presenting opposing views, presenting interesting view sets. And so that I think was a big part of my, my foundation. So to all my debate teachers who probably aren't listening to this interview, um, you helped me get here. And you know what, there's a lot of debaters currently elected. There's, there's some sneaky debaters in, in politics today. Um, but uh, yeah. And then, and then kind of just, you know, a, an interest in, um, making Canada better and, um, how do we continuously work to make this a great country to live in? Now, uh, in 2019, the Liberals were reduced to a minority government. We are now in a minority government, so an election can be called at any time. You have decided that you wanted to put your name forward for Calgary Centre uh, in the potential upcoming 44th general election. Uh, I, to start off, why, why now? Why did you decide that the 44th general election, the upcoming election, was going to be the election that you were going to put your name forward in? Um, so yeah, as I, as I mentioned, like I've, you know, I've always had an interest in politics and I've, I've worked in politics in a long, for a long time in, in Calgary and, um, at a, a number of different levels and as well as in Ottawa. And sometimes I think you think to yourself, oh, you know, this isn't my year. I, maybe I got to get a little bit more experience. Maybe I should, maybe I should wait a little bit longer. And I spent the last year, like many others working from home, um, seeing the challenges that we were facing. And, uh, you know, at, at, at some point last year, I kind of thought, you know what, I actually think I, I do have the experience um, that I need to be able to represent the voice of constituents. And I think that's really what should be your draw when you think about running for politics is it's not necessarily like how many letters come after your name or how many VP positions have you had. Um, that's not what makes you a good representative for your community. It's are you interested in listening to the people in your community and hearing um, the issues that they have or the celebrations that they have? And are you interested in then taking those issues or celebrations and moving them forward um, through a formal process that, that is government? And, um, you know, as especially as somebody who has been involved in youth advocacy for a long time, um, I mean, no longer a youth, but, but had been for a long time, I struggle with the idea that lots of young people um, see activism as the only way to change things. And I think that comes from not seeing 
uh, people who are who are like their peers elected in government, whether it's municipal, uh, provincial, federal, um, and not seeing government as a way to change things. And so I wanted to be able to, um, you know, prove to, to young people that government is a way to change things. It's not just a boring, um, you know, building in, in Ottawa. Um, it's actually not a boring building. It's a very beautiful building. Um, awesome. But, uh, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Um, but that you, you know, there's multiple avenues to change things and activism as a young person is amazing and it's great. And we need that. That's how we've made um, changes throughout our history, but that being elected isn't impossible. And that uh, that's another avenue for you to be able to change things. And that's how we make permanent change is through um, actions by government. It's regulation, it's legislation. Um, and I think people need to be able to see themselves reflected to uh, to make that change. And I, and I think that I have the ability to represent that voice. Now, now federally, uh, the majority of people will know that you have to run for a political party or as an independent. You have chosen in this election to run for the governing liberals under Justin Trudeau. In your own words, please describe to me what the liberals stand for and who they are as a party. Yeah, let me take that question and, and talk about my, I would describe um, myself, and my values. values and, and I think that that'll kind of like draw um, into, I, I believe that I'm a moderate. I believe that I'm a centrist. Um, but at the end of the day, I underpin my actions from, and, and my, my vision of Calgary or Canada with a human lens and with an empathetic lens towards people. And I think that's what the liberal party is. I think it's a party that um, represents the moderate interests of Canadians, um, but that it underpins its values, its actions, and its policies with that human lens that goes beyond just a dollars and cents um, reckoning of government. Um, you know, I don't think, I think government is so different than business in, in that sense that it doesn't just come down to um, how much money did we make or how much money did we lose? And, and that um, financial bottom line. Um, it's kind of the harbinger of uh, social value and thinking beyond um, just money and thinking about how things impact people and how we make sure at the end of the day, people who technically are our most valuable resource in from a human capital perspective um, are at the center of all of our decision making. And I think you see that in um, things like the feminist um, international assistance policy or in the implementation of a gender-based analysis um, or in the uh, you know um, integration of uh, decolonization and anti-systemic and um, anti-racism training that we're taking these ideas whether it is about growing the economy or adding jobs to um, to Canada's economy or we're thinking about um, you know agriculture or anything like that and you're taking it from the lens of people. Um, and I think that's what the Liberal Party is. And, and that's where I see my values represented. And, um, you know, I've been on other sides of the political spectrum, but um, that at the end of the day means a lot. And I think it means that um, you approach policy and decision making with a caring lens. Um, anyone who is an active user of Instagram or Twitter knows that you have been out canvassing. You've been out knocking on doors and getting people's uh, attention. 
Are your values that you just mentioned there lining up with the values that you are hearing at the door and what people are looking for in a potential next member of parliament for Calgary Centre? Um, absolutely. Uh, so I think that one thing that's interesting about COVID and this whole last year is that um, for a lot of people who kind of ordinarily go about their lives um, have really come into to tune into like the role that government plays. And there's not really been um, in, in most in recent memory. Um, I don't think there's been a year or a time where government has been more actively out and involved in the lives of people than this year. And reasonably so we've had um, you know, a major public health crisis. Um, and I think that that alone has shifted people's perspectives on what it means to approach policy with an empathetic and a human lens. And, you know, when I go to the doors, I've heard many people, uh, consistently talk about things, uh, like CERB and the wage subsidy and how, um, it's either saved their lives or saved their business. Um, many people who have talked about what that means for our future and, you know, coming for a lot of people who, who may have access CERB, it may have been their first time accessing something like that from the government. But what they've um, seen through that is the challenges that other people in our society have faced. And as we recover from COVID, um, how do we actually, you know, it's cheesy to say this because I, I think it's been overused, but how do we actually build back better? And how do we close those gaps in the systems that were revealed? These aren't new gaps. People have been suffering through these gaps for a long time, um, whether there's gaps at the provincial or, or federal level. And I think now people are realizing that there's an opportunity to solve those problems. Um, some of the major ones I've heard, of course, are seniors care, uh, national long-term care um, clearly had massive gaps and massive failures. Uh, we were failing a significant genera uh, generation and a percentage of the population that we've just kind of let be, um, something that I personally am, am, am hurt by um, and, and think that we need, to, we need to fix that problem. Uh, we had massive gaps, obviously, that uh, women have faced for a long time in the care economy, uh, with women taking on extraordinary amounts of um, invisible and care labor uh, that they've been taking on for generations. But uh, now I think a lot of people have learned what that means. Um, you know, women dropping out of the economy. I think we have the lowest economic participation of women right now since 1980 or in the 80s. Sorry. And so, yeah, those sentiments that I've talked about um, were lived experiences by people in the last year. And I think that's changed a lot of people's perspectives. Now, in the last uh, two weeks as a political observer, uh, you have had two federal ministers come into Calgary and you've met with them and you've spoken to them. The first being the environment minister, John Wilkinson, and then the second being the uh, transportation minister who was just here, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday or the day before. Um, I, I want to talk about here, I think. Oh, he's still here. Okay. If he wants to come on the show, hey, uh, the invitation's <laughs> open. Um, I want to talk about transit for a second, because uh, as someone who is in the downtown core, the Calgary Center, where the Green Line is going to be a major construction project for not only the city, but especially downtown, what are you hearing at the doorsteps when it comes to access to reliable public transit at the door? 
Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you asked that because my community, uh, my riding is quite diverse. There's parts that uh, definitely have really good transit access and there's other parts that are a little bit, um, well, they're in a, in a train desert, I'd say, maybe not necessarily in a, in a Calgary bus desert. Um, access to transit, I think is, is really, really important for a certain segment of um, people in this riding. And because it's, the way that they get to social activities, to their jobs, and the way that they are connected to the rest of the city. And, um, you know, for a lot of folks, ensuring that you're not spending two, three hours transiting through this city is really, really important. And the um, the green line makes that difference uh, in those people's lives. And um, so, yeah, it's been a huge issue. Um, I think it, it it hasn't been as much of an issue as it would have been in the past, because I think now we've really settled the debate, hopefully, on the fact that the Green Line is needed and it's useful and it's something that is completely necessary to move our con- uh, move our city forward into the next generation of the economy. Um, and I think it's important that uh, that it's being done. And I'm proud of this government for for funding that Green Line and making sure that it's um, committed to. You know, a big part of it is the environmentalism and and making sure that we have cleaner and um, more climate friendly ways of travel. But a big part of it is really connecting people to the places that they need to be and not assuming that everybody can afford a car. Um, It's not just that people maybe don't want a car because they're looking, you know, to be environmentally friendly. It's also because some folks can't afford it. And we need to be able, especially in our downtown core, um, where we know that the income split is is vast, that there's some extraordinarily high income and some extraordinarily low income, um, and especially through COVID, that we allow people to be able to get to their jobs and to their um, lives in the best way possible. And I think that's a big part of, of ensuring that we build transit infrastructure. And any major city in North America, globally even, has good transit infrastructure. It's a key facet of moving your economy forward. If you were to rank transit as a, an important issue, where would it be? Would it be the top issue that you're hearing at the doorstep? Would it be like the second? Because I know you did talk about seniors, long-term care, care and economy, and uh, and we're going to be talking about daycare here in a few seconds. But where would it be on the scale of things? Because while I understand and it's great that you're advocating for it because people don't have access to cars and it's hard to buy a car yeah. in, in today's economy or as our premier would want us all to do, buy a pickup truck. It would be great if we could all buy the only way to get around. Exactly. Have you ever driven in, have you ever driven in Calgary without a pickup truck? How would you, how would you even get to A to B? Exactly. So I want to know in, in, in the scale of things that you're hearing at the doorstep, is it the top issue? Um, No, I wouldn't say it's the top issue. And I think the reason why it's not the top issue is because it's being funded right now. I think um, if we were if we were back in 20, um, 20, 2019, um, when you have a province that continues continuously is is stalling that issue, I think it it was a major issue because people were afraid that it wasn't going to be built. And this is a project that um, has been ongoing for more than seven, eight years in development. And it's a massive part of our um, move forward. So I think, yeah, two years ago, it was definitely a top issue. And we know that it was a top issue. Um, I think today, the commitments that the governments have made at at all levels are critical um, to it no longer being a substantial issue because Calgarians are confident that it's going to be built. 
Um, now, yeah. Oh, sorry. Now, one of the biggest issues that I think everyone is still facing, and we are unsure if we're in a post-recovery COVID-19 or if we're still in a potential fourth wave here, but COVID-19 has changed the name of the game around how people interact with other people, how people go about their daily lives. Um, this government has tried to uh, help as many people as they possibly can. Earlier this week, if not yesterday, the former Prime Minister Stephen Harper came out and said that this was not the right way to do it. What are you hearing at the doorsteps? And you talked about CERB a little bit, and we talked about wage subsidies. And we'll get into a little bit more about that here in a few seconds. But what are you hearing about the, at the doorstep? Are people appreciative of what the government has done over the last 18 months to ensure that people aren't falling behind, losing their houses, losing the cars, while also losing their jobs, because a lot of people became unemployed over the last 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely, people are uh, thankful for the support that the government has provided. Um, you know, I uh, I would refute um, the the former prime minister's uh, comments on that. Um, I don't think people have, have felt that way. And um, I've been at the doors. I've been, I've probably talked to thousands of people since, uh, since this process began and people are thankful. They, they understand first of all, that this is, this wasn't a normal year. This wasn't even a normal emergency. This was a global emergency of unprecedented times except for war times, perhaps is the only time I can think of, uh, you know, in our recent lives when the entire world was facing the same crisis. Um, so I think from that perspective, a lot of people understand that perspective. I've had um, people on all sides of the pol political spectrum say to me, I completely understand what the government needed to do. And I appreciate that we were able to provide that support to Canadians. Um, <clears throat> you know, You've heard the the idea that the government can take on debt that people can't is true. We've just proven it. And um, the the notion that had we not provided that support, I, I think we already know that Canadians are in a somewhat precarious financial position um, prior to COVID. We're, these are we're looking at data from 2018, 2019. A lot of Canadians were in were in precarious positions. Um, without that support, you're looking at personal bankruptcies. You're looking at personally people um, sending in the keys, you know, the, the jingle keys in Alberta, we call them, where you put the keys in the mail and you send them back to the bank for your house. Um, and for Alberta in particular, we've already been through that because we've had um, a recession from the energy industry. I don't think that Albertans could have survived um, and Calgarians could have survived another massive economic impact without government support. And I think Albertans know that because that's what I've heard at the door is people are thankful. I think people recognize that there is a deficit that we now must contend with and that we need to face. And, um, you know, as we start to get the economy roaring again, I think that that's something that we can face. And one of the reasons why I'm running is that um, as a as a, a 32 year old, I'm likely going to be one of the people that's massively inheriting uh, this um, deficit. And I'm happy. I'm happy that we supported Canadians through the pandemic. I think we did a great job at supporting Canadians through the pandemic. And I'm happy now to sit down um, with like-minded, you know, smart colleagues across this country and figure out how you move the deficit uh, downwards. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second, because while we are coming out of the uh, pandemic and uh, people are getting shots in the arms and, uh, 
vax uh, the number of cases is slowly while semi being a blip right now they are going down compared to where they were in january in march mm-hmm. um the another political party would say hey you can't stop the wage subsidy you can't stop serb because of this you have to continue mm-hmm. it on and the reduction of it is going to hurt the people who rely on it and have come to rely on it what would you say to the people who say i would love to support the liberal party but the money that you're going to be potentially cutting from me is going to potentially make me homeless is going to potentially cause me to go into debt could potentially cause me to send my keys back to the bank how do you address that in a recovery process of the pandemic Mm -hmm. Um, I think as you um, approach recovery, it's now about balance. So it's about making sure that those who want to and can work are able to find jobs and are able to get into those jobs um, in a way that's accessible for them and meets their needs. Um, And I think part of that comes from, for example, the implementation of a um, $15 national minimum wage requirement. Um, You know, a lot of a lot of folks struggle on minimum wage jobs um, because it doesn't meet their needs. And it's unfortunate that CERB was meeting the needs that um, employment income wasn't. And so I think as we come back into the economy, uh, restoring that balance and making sure that um, when folks re-enter the economy, they are able to to make the payments and and things that they need. And then I think on the other hand, it's about um, taking the lessons learned and evaluating the social programs uh, that we had implemented throughout COVID, which almost in many ways kind of acted like a national pilot program um, for social programming, especially <clears throat> on the CERB side and, and you know, potential uh, new approaches to things like em- employment insurance and, and how people are supported when they are unemployed um, or unable to work. And taking those lessons learned and then inputting them into into um, effective social programs and into the next budget. And I think that this government has proven that it is always there for Canadians. Um, you know, things alone like the the Canadian Child Benefit have lifted um, just under five hundred thousand kids out of poverty. And that human lens is the approach that the Liberals have taken to policy making um, and pe- putting people first. And I think that that's proven. I think it's going to continue. And I think as we recover, it's just about making sure that we have that balance. One of the other areas that you talked about was the care economy. Um, The Liberals have been doing a cross-country tour of, hey, we want to roll out our national daycare strategy, $10 a day daycare for every province who signs on. BC has Mm -hmm. signed on, PEI, I believe, just signed on, Nova Scotia has signed on. There are provinces after provinces who are signing on. The uh, Alberta government says that there are negotiations with uh, with the federal government but are you hearing at the day at the doorstep? I was going to say daycare there for a second, but are you hearing at the doorstep uh, that this is a priority for people who are looking for uh, reliable, affordable daycare? Uh, absolutely, um, reliable, affordable, safe daycare. I think is um, what people are looking for. And noting again that it's an you know the province has talked about oh flexibility and and not having enough. Um, flexibility or choice, you know, right now, the choice that people are making is that if they have a single child, that they are paying the equivalent almost of a mortgage to be able to put that child into daycare. And for some individuals, uh, including single moms, um, you know, people who are lower income, they don't even have a mortgage. So to ask them to be spending the entire cost a month of childcare 
to put their child into care because they also have to then go back and work in the economy is an impossible choice. And um, a, a key part of that choice is that safe, regulated piece that you don't want to just be leaving your child anywhere. Um, you want to make sure that where you're leaving your child uh, is the right place and it's safe and, and that child will be cared for. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a huge thing I've heard at the doors every day. Um, you know, I talk to young families at the doors and I hear about how much it costs to keep their child in care. And I think that was uh, revealed, obviously, through COVID because, you know, parents were at home. Um, but the, the costs are staggering. And I've had a lot of, of, of folks who, you know, maybe don't have children or who um, didn't have care, child care issues when they were when they were young parents um, ask me how it's going to be paid for. And what I would say to that is um, it will pay for itself when you allow 50% of the um, working population to easily and accessibly access the labor markets without fear that their children are not um, in a safe, regulated place at home. Um, when, they, when, a, when a woman doesn't have to worry about paying $2,000 a month for her child to be safe and doesn't have to worry about cutting her job short and only working part-time or only taking a consulting contract because she has to be there at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day to take care of her child, um, she's going to contribute to the economy. And that money that people are saving from childcare is going to go back into the economy and stimulate uh, the economy in other ways. You know, parents can take vacations. Parents can enroll their children in day camps. Um, you know, they can do other things with their money that are going to stimulate the economy. This is something, this is not a social issue. This is not a women's issue. This is an economic issue. And <clears throat> I don't have children. And I firmly believe that this changes the landscape for women in the economy and in the workplace, because at a certain age, employers look at you and they say, oh, but she might have children and she might have to take maternity leave and she might have to like always leave at 4 p.m. exactly to pick up her child from daycare. And it limits your options in promotions and in um, jobs. And I think that for all women and all people, parents or not, this is a game changer for the economy. And the data is there. There's not even we're not this isn't an argument. Um, countries who have uh, regul safe, regulated early child care and learning um, are doing very well in the economy. And, 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 and you know, the, the data is there to prove it. So. While we've just talked about what the sort of the left is attacking the Liberal Party on, I want to talk about what the right is attacking the Liberal Party on. And that right. is the Liberal Party. <laughs> exactly. Um, I want to talk about the uh, the energy industry. The energy industry mm -hmm. seems to be a uh, issue that the conservatives like to attack the liberals on because they are perceived to be soft on the energy industry. They don't want more oil. They want to cancel pipelines. Are you hearing from the, at the doorstep that while you are a great candidate, we can't support you because your party is anti-oil and they want to destroy the economy for Alberta. And what do you say to people who say that to you? Um, so, you know, first, let me say that this this party isn't anti oil um, and it's and it's certainly, uh, you know, for the record, again, you know, it's been said a lot, but we bought a pipeline um, and it's currently being built um, for those. Any, anyone who's asking bought the pipeline currently being built. Um, what I would say is, you know, I've been in politics a long time in Alberta. 
Um, and the conversations I'm having with people today at the doors are radically different than the conversations I may have had in 2012, 2015, 2019. Um, I think that the mindset and the vision of Calgarians has changed and the mindset of Albertans has changed. And it's been in many ways led and guided by the energy industry itself. I think that the energy industry in this province is um, in many ways further ahead than where even government um, me, me, me needs to be and, and is. Um, and we've seen the commitments to uh, net zero by energy companies at net zero by 2050. We've seen uh, that, you know, especially in Alberta, energy companies are presently the biggest investors in renewable and clean tech in the province, um, uh, not only in their own companies, but additionally supporting that complementary rise of entrepreneurship and startups that are working in the clean tech and renewable space. And so companies are leading the way. And government is setting ambitions, the federal government is setting the ambitions for um, a clean environment and climate change at a national level and, and setting those ambitions at a global level. Um, but it's about making sure, and I, th I think the prime minister said this a few weeks ago, it's about making sure that we prepare Calgary to be a place for jobs of the future and jobs of the future could be in in the resource industry but those jobs look different than they do today and i think that's the the edge that we're we're moving towards that the liberal party is moving towards and that the conservatives continue to hold us back on um you know to, to the conservatives the the ideal is the same as it looked in 2012 as it looked in you know 1996 as it looked in 1980 and we've evolved from from that time so i don't know why we wouldn't evolve going forward on a new approach to uh, energy and to the resource industry um, energy doesn't just mean one thing anymore in alberta it means a number of different kinds of things and you know as i mentioned how do we create that complementary industry to energy um, that's going to support it we need um, technology in transportation and logistics. We need to continue innovation in clean tech and renewables. Um, we need to potentially be a place that accepts jobs that are in manufacturing. If we're gonna have net zero vehicles, doesn't mean that they have to be manufactured in Ontario, they could be manufactured in Alberta. Uh, that's the future here. And I think that's the uh, energy industry that this government is supporting. And it's responding to a global changing demand. Um, you know, Minister, as you said, Minister Wilkinson was here um, last uh, week or two weeks ago, and he's now leading on the global G7 file with our G7 partners um, on climate financing and adaptations, a big part of which is, is new energy. And, you know, you look at the, the UK government, that's a conservative government um, that is leading uh, and is the president of the COP for this year. So it's not something that we can say is, is not being reflected globally, or is that is a, it's a liberal agenda. You have conservative governments around the world that are attacking climate and, ener and energy in a, in a new way. And um, Canada is part of that leadership. Again, I'm going to play devil's advocate here again, because you, you, while it's great that we're looking after the environment, uh, people of the Green Party will come at you and say, you can't be uh, you can't say that you're environmentally friendly when you buy and build a pipeline. How do you address that? How do you say, you know what, we are trying to hit those uh, uh, climate uh, uh, targets that we've set. 
but we have to build this pipeline because we we understand that the oil industry is not dead. It's not going anywhere. And we need to get our crude oil to market. Yeah, I, I would say that that's it's a balanced approach to uh, jobs, the economy and the environment. And I think that uh, I'm proud of Alberta and, Canada and Canada's energy industry. I think it's um, on the cutting edge of innovation globally for the last um, two decades. We have been on the cutting edge of innovation. You know, organizations like Casia have led on environmentally friendly, sustainable ways um, to, to produce energy in this province. And I think it's about balance and it's about recognizing um, that the ener- the industry is on board to transition, uh, that we need to be able to support them um, and that we support them by having good ambition and by stimulating the economy and uh, stimulating that in, in the renewable industry to be able to make those changes. Um, I, you know, I, I think just because you buy a pipeline doesn't mean you're not an environmentalist because we understand um, where energy comes from, how people are are moving forward today. But we also understand that ambitions need to be set. And I think that that is a balance that the Liberal government has struck um, with its policies. And I, I just wanted to, sorry, just I just wanted to circle back to something that you said earlier about the conversations I've had at the doors. And the conversations I've had at the doors are exactly this conversation. Um, I am not, uh, you know, I am very much less so hearing angry uh, voices and, um, you know, voices that are frustrated and a lot of voices that are in fact um, really interested in the way that we move forward and are completely on board uh, with how Calgary and Alberta moves forward on an energy um, transition on this new energy. And a transition doesn't mean that we're, um, you know, turning off the taps tomorrow. It means that we think about a future economy that reflects and complements our resources, but also moves us forward in many other ways. And um, people, people are on board with that. Um, Calgarians are on board with that. It's, we're having better conversations today than we have in our past. Um, I just looked at the time and I realized that I, I because I love policy talk so much, I, I've let it run this segment run a little bit longer than I should. But I, I do want to say uh, for those who, have, who are tuning in right now, we are sitting down with Sabrina Grover, the liberal candidate for Calgary Center. Um, I, I want to move into you being the next MP for Calgary Center. If you are elected, you are going to be elected in a time that Politically speaking, we are more divided than we have ever been. There seems mm-hmm. to be a growing gap between where we were 10 years ago to compared to where we are today. How do you envision governing for not only the people who vote for you in the next election, but for all the people of Calgary Center? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And um you know, I think that really comes down to also the reasons why I'm running and my motivation for running is I am running for the Liberal Party because I, I believe that, that their values align with my values. And this is a, a vision I'd like to see for Canada. But my motivation for running is for Calgary and for Calgary Centre. And I feel really connected to this community. I feel connected to the people um, that I could possibly represent. And the interests that I have are really about making 
changes for this community at a community level. And I think the federal government has a role to play in that, um, whether we fund things like affordable housing, whether we fund things like local infrastructure, you know, you're talking about nature pathways and community associations that are able to do things in their own um, backyards, uh, whether we fund things like arts and culture, which is uh, rich and growing in, in Calgary and, and you know, dominated in Calgary Centre. Um, I'm running for Calgary and running for Calgary Center and, um, you know, nationally, I'll be part of the Liberal Party, but my ambitions and my hopes are to make improvements in this riding um, specifically. And I think a lot of that deals with the economy. And I think that's the approach that I'm taking. And that's why I think I can I can be representative of voices that maybe didn't even vote for me because um, I'm not running on a political stance. I'm running to make um, improvements to our city that I think uh, are necessary and that the federal government should and will and can support um, with the right person at the table. Uh, we need a voice at we need a Calgary and Alberta voice at the decision making table. I think someone said that this is the first time in like. 40 or 50 years that we haven't had um, a cabinet minister from this province in any government at the table. And I think that that's a loss for us. It, it holds us back. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm running in it. I'm running to be in it for Calgary. And, and I think that uh, that transcends that hyper-partisan political view. Um, the benefits that I think that I'll make are, are to the people here directly. Now um, it is uh in 2015, uh, Calgary Centre went liberal under the former MP Kent Hare. You, uh, in 2019, Greg McLean uh, did take it back for the Conservatives. And the Liberals haven't had a good, uh, I shouldn't say chance, but a good uh, reputation of winning in Calgary. What gives you hope? What gives you the push to continue canvassing, to continue door knocking that's telling you, hey, I'm sensing a change here. I'm sensing that people are looking for that voice, are looking for that change. And the current MP is not giving us the voice that he promised us in 2019. I think a lot of my um, hope is being driven by the response I'm hearing at the doors. And, uh, you know, what I've been saying to Calgarians. Uh, at the doors and, and on the phones is that we need to tell a more positive and ambitious story about who we are and where we're going. And uh, Calgarians are resonating with that. The perception that we put out um, that we are negative and that we're angry and that we hate Ontario um, and that Ontario hates us is not the reality that's on the ground. That's a narrative that is pushed and it is portrayed um, by many of those who represent us and, and seek to be the only voice for Calgarians and Albertans in Ottawa um, at the provincial and federal level here in this province. And um, I talk to Calgarians every day, and that is not the response I'm getting. I'm not saying there aren't folks that don't feel like that, and I, I don't want to invalidate their feelings, um, but I wouldn't say it's the overwhelming response. And there was a, a conversation a couple of weeks ago on, uh, I think held by City X Lab on the perception versus reality of Calgary. And we had the same conversation with, I think, 300 people around the, the virtual Zoom table that that perception doesn't match the reality. That Calgary is a vibrant, dynamic, thriving place 
We have a thriving art scene that's not just a nice to have, but it's part of our economy and continues to grow to be part of our economy. We have amazing communities that people um, clamor across this country to live in um, because we have a good standard of living, because they're accessible, because they are walkable and they're built as you know complete communities. Uh, we have a economy that is rising in its diversity uh, and is diverse, just isn't necessarily fully supported to be um, all it can be. And uh, that is the reality of this city. And so that um, negative, angry portrayal of a, of a mad Albertan isn't correct. And I don't think people want to feel that way and they don't want to be painted that way anymore. And I think that's the, um, you know, the thing that I've, had that keeps me running and continuing to hear about that has been really positive. And, you know, the last thing I'd say is um, there are a number of Calgarians who are liberal um, and there are a number of Calgarians and Albertans who are um, on the progressive side of the political spectrum. And I think they're tired of being treated like they are anti-Albertan or that by somehow voting liberal, that they don't care about this province. And uh, that is the message that we're taking to people, that you don't have to feel like that anymore, um, and that we're here to, to represent that view. Um, in order to represent that view, you have to be first elected. Take a few Indeed. moments. <laughs> take, one, take two minutes, two to three minutes. Talk to the people of Calgary Centre. Talk to the people who are potentially thinking, you know what? You're right. I'm not the angry Albertan that people are portraying. And I'm wanted, I want to put my faith and trust into Sabrina as the next MP for at Calgary Centre. What do you say to them? Take two, three minutes. Go ahead. You know, I think it's exactly exactly what I've said already, that I think in, in Calgary, it's time we tell a more positive and ambitious story about who we are and where we're going and what that future looks like 15, 20 years um, down the line. Uh, it looks like, um, you know, people are not moving here just for jobs anymore. They're moving here for a lifestyle. And we have a great place to live in the city, but um, we need to make sure that we continue to invest in that to continue having it be a great place to live, um, making sure that we have a welcoming environment for people, uh, making sure that we invest in the things that people care about, um, healthcare, childcare, uh, you know, transportation, infrastructure, the things that the federal government is, is more than willing to invest in, um, especially where other governments may, uh, may pull back their, their investments uh, in this province. And how do we make sure that the story we tell is positive. Um, at the end of the day, I think that Canada needs more Calgary at the table. I think Canada needs Calgary to be um, the one of the economic engines of this country, and it is already, but it has the potential to be even more than the story we currently tell. And I think, um, frankly, you know, Calgary needs more Canada. Uh, we're we're not just standing out here on our own. We're part of this amazing country, uh, a great you know, social fabric that weaves through our whole country. And um, we are a major city. We're a major metropolitan area. Um, we have the potential uh, to continue to be that, but only with the right investment and only with the right story. And I think that's a story of the future and not a story of the past. So, and I think that that's what the liberals are, are here for. And, and personally, um, you know, as I mentioned, I'm in it for Calgary Center. I'm in it to represent this community and be the Calgary that uh, the Canada needs. 
Now, uh, and yet again, I'm just cautious of time here. We're about the 50 minute mark. So I'm going to do a quick little wrap up. But my last question to you is, how can people learn more? It's great that we can have this 50 minute conversation. We can have this interview. We can have this conversation. But people want, will probably want to learn more about yourself, get involved, reach out to you. How do they do that? Um, great question. So we have uh, an online presence like most people uh, these days. Um, and so you can find us online at uh, sabrinagrover.ca. Um, you can also follow me on um, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok because I'm one of those millennials um, at Sabrina Grover. Um, and uh, just learning how to use TikTok. This is uh, it's a new foray for me. Um, it's very exciting, very interesting, a new, a new media for us, but yeah, sabrinagrover.ca follow me online at Sabrina Grover. And, um, if you're, if you're out there and you're listening today, we're going to be having a picnic in Calgary center at Stanley park, 5 PM, come on down, um, sandwiches, sandwiches and, and snacks for everyone until we run out, I guess. There you go. Um, for my listeners and to my viewers, uh, the link to Sabrina's website, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook are in the show notes. So check it out. I will be honest. I am not linking anyone's TikTok in the show notes because I do not understand it and it's not for me, but check it out. Go, go, get, go get informed. This is an important election that we're talking about. This is the future of Canada that we're talking about and you need to get out, get involved, learn about the candidates. And I hope Hope that this last 50 minutes has done just that. Sabrina, thank you so much for doing this. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been uh, it's been great to chat with you. And um, you know what? The other the other way you'll find me, Calgarians, is I'll probably be at your door or calling you on the phone. So look out for that too. The ballot box is part of the Cross Border Interview podcast and is produced and edited by Miranda Brown and Associates Incorporated.